We are going to be in 1 Samuel today, chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there are blue Bibles under your chairs, and we will be in page 137 from those. And if you do not have a Bible currently, we encourage you to take that with you. Um, David anointed king. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears me, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me to him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him and trembling said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peacefully, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord anointed him before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees as not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, All of your sons are here. And he said, These... There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping to the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit, sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for that is he. And Samuel took the horn and the oil and appointed him in the midst of the brothers of the Spirit of the Lord, rushed upon David from the, that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when a harmful spirit of God is upon you, he will play it, and you all will be well. So Saul said this to the servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send to me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jansen. Great job. Called in last minute with a sickness. You did awesome. My name's Josh. I haven't been here for the last few weeks, but I'm one of the pastors here. Last service, Dan described me as a wonderful pastor. This service, he said, the guy who is giving the sermon. So, <laughs> have a very low bar. Yeah. 
Good hair, whatever. I've been out. I went to Disneyland. If you haven't been, I'm a fan. So I'm 39, my first time going to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. And it was a blast. So uh, if you have not been, here's my ringing endorsement. It's, it's worth the money. It's worth the money. Disneyland's great. And then last week I was hunting, so I had Anthony Hernandez teach maybe the hardest passage you can open up to in the Old Testament. And I did not pay attention to that. The hunting season landed where it landed. I said, Anthony, will you preach? And then after the fact, I'm like, wow, that was not very kind of me to give you such an intense passage. But this is less intense. This is actually a very pivotal moment in the story of God. This is the pivotal moment sort of in the Old Testament. So just to Coming into church, it's interesting because everybody kind of looks the same, everybody's kind of dialed in the same, but there's all sorts of layers of where we're at with our faith journey. Some of you don't know Jesus, some of you are skeptical of this whole thing, some of you have been following Jesus for 50 years. We're all in different places, but as we open the Bible, it's a daunting book to get into because it's a daunting book. It's covering the history of the entire universe. What is God doing in the world? And just to give us a quick overview, I gave this weeks ago, but here's sort of the Bible in six chapters. God establishes his kingdom. If you open up the first two chapters, it's where we get the story of Adam and Eve that some would say is fictional. We say that's real. There really was an Adam and Eve, and there was a perfect world where everything was good and right and beautiful, and God was king. And he says, hey, do whatever you want. He gave them one rule, and they took that rule, and they said, we will not have your rule. And they ate of the fruit that God said, do not eat of. And rebellion fractured the entire universe. The choice of a man and a woman, our original parents, has fractured the very universe we all reside in. And the kingdom is fractured. The soil is fractured, our bodies are fractured, relationships are fractured. My relationship with myself is not as it should be. Why? Because rebellion entered into the kingdom. And here's what God could have done. I'm out. But the Old Testament is the story of God who creeps closer and closer and closer to his rebellious, sinful people. And the way he does it is he chooses a people to enter into the world with, and that's Israel. Abraham, you will have descendants greater than stars. Look up at the sky. You'll have more descendants than those stars. And he chooses Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, David, and he keeps pursuing the world through Israel. And he tells Israel this thing, you will have a king who will reign over this world forever. It'll be from your line, Judah, sweet little tribe of Judah, and I will rule the universe through you, Israel. And that's the story of the Old Testament. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the New Testament, third chapter, he's here. And everybody misses him because he does not look like we expected him to look. But the king of Israel, the king of the universe is here, Jesus Christ, and he lives on this earth. 33-ish years, lives a perfect life, and his reward for living with the people that he created is they murder him on a cross. They place him in a grave. He's in the grave for three days. On the third day, he walks out of his own grave as king. Once and for all, there is no more Saul's and David's needed because Jesus the king is here. He walks around for 40 more days with his disciples, teaching, correcting, eating, drinking, enjoying them, and says, hey, I'm out. I'm going to sit on my throne, but I will sit my spirit and you flip over in the book of acts is the spirit coming down on normal people sinful fallen broken scared insecure people like you and me and the spirit comes on them and powerful things begin to happen specifically the kingdom of god spreads through the spirit 
empowered people. And the whole Old Testament is about how all these churches, these spirit-centered, spirit-empowered groups of people pop up. And they're telling the news that the king has come and he has forgiven your sins if you place your trust in him. And the king is coming again. And the very end of the Bible is this. I am coming back. Jesus' last words to us in his book. And next time I come, I'm not coming as a humble servant. I'm coming as, coming as the conquering king and I will destroy evil once and for all. That is the story of the Bible. That's what this is about. It is not a do-good book for do-gooders or not do-gooders on how to fix little tweaks in their life. It is how God has intervened in history on our behalf. And we're in this little section, 1 Samuel, and we're looking at three specific characters. This is what last week Anthony wrapped up with Saul. Saul was the first king. David's the first king that God chooses. And Solomon will be the last king of a united kingdom for Israel before all hell breaks loose. Yet again, because that's what happens when sinners are in charge. But we are now turning the page, and we are going to the life of David. And David, outside of Jesus, is probably the most famous character in the Bible. If you don't have a church background, David and Goliath, which is next week, all these stories of David tend to be kind of up there with Jesus. But that's what we get to look at today, is the life of David. But specifically, here's what we're going to be tackling today. If you have your Bible, I just want to read the verse that sheds light on this whole morning we have together. Verse 7 of chapter 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Here's the theme of this morning. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel, a godly man, misses it. Godly men and women in here miss it. Why? Because we see as man sees, we see the outward, but God looks on the heart. Here's our big idea for today, is the king and the kingdom of God is not what we expect. It's not what we expected. It's not what we were looking for. That's why it's missed all over, because it's not we expect. And God is going to do this this morning. He's going to take our head and look at this story of this little King David, this little boy David, and we're going to see this come to light, that the kingdom and the king that God chooses is never quite what we expect, but it's everything we need. So I want to stop. Let's just calm our hearts. Close your eyes for a second, because here's what we believe. There is a Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who does not have a template that he uses across the board with everyone, but he uniquely speaks and guides and comforts each one of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. So Holy Spirit, meet us collectively as a church family and meet us individually and show us what we need to see in this text that we often miss the king and his kingdom because we see the outward and you look inward. God be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. amen. So this is sort of going to be the anti-hype message. Like, how do you get better in life? More, bigger, faster, more money, more whatever. This is going to like dial it way down. What is the kingdom of God like? It's slow, small, insignificant, easy 
to overlook. So whatever expectation you came in here, just know I'm going to take it. I'm going to bring it even lower because that's what we want to do because that's what this text does. But to get there, let's just set up this story. Again, Anthony did an amazing job, but let's start in chapter 16. I want to read the first five verses, which are the follow-up to last week when Saul did something terrible and then there's evil and wicked. If you didn't watch the message, it's really great. Go watch it. But essentially, here's the summary statement. Saul, you're out. You disobeyed. You're done. First king of Israel. Now he's still got the crown. He still has the office. He still has the name plaque. But God says you're done. Here's where we're at. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Samuel is grieving. I did all this work to get a king over my people. He lasted not long at all. I'm the guy who put him there. And he's moping around, and the Lord meets him and says, how long are you going to sit here and mope? I'm still on the move. I'm still working. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If I go and anoint another king, Saul will kill me. You know this. If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said this. Well, let's not come in with a banner of new kingdom. Let's just come in with a religious sacrifice and activity. So the Lord tells him this. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to that sacrifice. And I will show you what you should do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. He shows up, did what God said. And like with a lot of situations with the religious leaders, the holy person, whether it's a priest or a pastor, in a moment, there's sort of like a fear because that person represents God. That's exactly what happens here. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling. Why is the holiest guy in our land here? Nobody ever thinks, you know, God's here to reward me. Everyone assumes I did something wrong. That's just human nature. Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I'm here in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So they do their ritual cleansing. They don't touch dead animals. They do all this stuff. They avoid sexual activity to come to be ready for this religious sacrifice that Samuel, the Holy One, is bringing to him. But in this little section, God wants us to see how he describes King David. So if you go back to verse 1, I just want to hear God speak on behalf of David. And I want to compare it to how he talked about Saul. So it's, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Just pause right there. David is the king that God provides for himself. God says, David is my king. Well, who, who is Saul? Saul is the king that the people begged for. We want to be like the other people. It's like my kids when they're not happy with what we have in our house. I want what they have and what they have. Fine. Go. One less mouth to feed. God says, you want to be like them? Fine. Who? Oh, the tall, good-looking one. Saul is your king. David is my king. So what we're walking into is God like making abundantly clear, you better look at your king and my king and take some notes and learn your lesson for next time that my king 
is always better. My way is always better. It's not the obvious way. Rarely is it, but it's the better way. So as we look at the king of God's choosing, what are some things that we as Christians need to be reminded? Nothing I'm going to say is going to be all that, oh, I never thought of that. But it's going to be a great reminder because we live in this world where there's a slow drip to constantly forget how to think the way God wants us to think, how to see the way God wants us to see, how to live how God wants us to see. So here's the first thing we see as we dive into this life of David. The king of God's choosing is easy to overlook. You can include in there the kingdom. The kingdom of God is easy to overlook. Those of us that love Jesus aren't in the most obvious winning group on this earth. We're in the kingdom that's very easy to overlook. We're following the king who's very easy to overlook, and we see it as God presents his king of his choosing for the first time in the life of David. We see it here in chapter 16, verse 6. Anybody remember how Saul was introduced? It's far different than this. We want a king! Fine. And they scan out. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone. He was wealthy. He was tough. He was tall. Did I mention he was tall? Like he was so, so, so tall. That's your king. See how tall he is? And here's God's king. Verse 6. Let's read down to verse 12. But when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So who's talking there? Just, I'm not going to pause a ton. But Samuel, the first son of Jesse. Eliab. Samuel goes, that's him. And Samuel's old. Let's just say he's near his 80s. And it's like God has never done teaching us lessons. You don't get to a decade where you've arrived and you're done hearing lessons. God is like, Samuel, you're... And here's the lesson, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And here's the theme of this passage. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel, that's not how I see things. First kid, that's it. No, let's continue on. Then Jesse called Abinadad and made him pass before Samuel. Samuel learned his lesson. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But he is busy keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. The party is on pause until baby gets here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for he is he. What do we see as the king that God chooses shows up for the first time? Like, everybody misses him. Samuel does not see him. Jesse doesn't see him. David doesn't even see what's happening. He's just a boy in the field. And God is showing up to anoint the king that was going to start the lineage that would eventually lead to the Messiah of Israel. A big moment is happening, and it's because it's so easy to miss. Just some notes on this story. How many sons does Jesse have Seven, 
but there's this other guy. And it's like a poetic way to say seven is the word number for completion. So Jesse, have you given me all the options? Yep, here's my seven sons. As far as I see, this is the options for whatever sacrifice you're doing right. This is all we have. This is our resources, this money we have. This is, this is what we can provide to get the next step in life. This is what we have. Oh, wait, there's this David. That's right, little Davy's out in the field. And that is human nature. What do I see? How is this going to work? This is what I have as far as resources, Lord. Use this. And God goes, what about what you forgot? The little boy out in the field. We see what we see. Our resources, this is human nature. And it does not get fixed the day we walk into faith with Jesus Christ. We begin the journey of removing our eyes and replacing them with the eyes of faith. Who is David? Here's how he's described. I love it. He's ruddy. It's a great word. I want to be ruddy. It means reddish. So he has a complexion that's reddish, which is attractive. So he's got a good tan, first thing. What else? He has beautiful eyes. Look at those eyes. My son got hit on. He didn't realize it was the first time I've seen it happen. Roman, nine years old. We're at Waterworld, her Hurricane Harbor, and the girl giving Dippin' Dots is like, you have the most beautiful eyes. I'm like, Roman, do you know what's happening? No. I'm like, she's hitting on you. She's 17, so this is illegal, but just know this is, <laughs> this is what's going down here. And the thing they notice about David is his eyes. And just to compare back to Saul, Saul, whenever he's talked about it, it's like, see how tall he is? Well, let's look at David. The writer tends to focus on his eyes. It's almost like you're going for military strength. I'm going for a man who sees this world with the eyes of faith. And he has beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. What's not apparent in this, just based off of English reading of it, is kind of, well, what stage of life is he? Is he like a 25-year-old stud? He's probably like 10 to 15. So my oldest is 12. He's like a, one of our junior high boys strolling in. So when they were, use the word handsome and ruddy, it's like he's cute. He's got potential. <laughs> he's got good genes. There's our boy, the cute one with the pretty eyes. That's who shows up. And nobody sees that that is the king that God has chosen. Why? Because we don't see as God sees. We're looking at the appearance. That kid who smells like sheep, great, he's got good complexion, but that, God is always trying to take us and shrink down so we can see the world the way he sees it. Not shrink down our faith, but just see like what others aren't seeing. Everyone's trying to live up here like they're king of the universe, and the king comes down, and he says, no, 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 look down here. The eyes of the 12-year-old boy, he's the one. There's a parable in Matthew that I think just summarizes just this thought. Jesus is teaching, and he says this, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven, what's it like? It's like a military victory. It's like total domination. It's like winning a championship. It's like a honeymoon night. It's like, it's like a grain of a mustard seed that took and he sowed it in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest. In its branches. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like the king. 
it's so small you would miss it because no one is out there looking for mustard seeds. No one's like, oh, I wonder where the mustard seeds are sprouting. Like one of my side hobbies, my future job after I retire pastoring is tree salesman. I love trees. I sold a house in Chandler. Whenever I'm out there for meetings, I kind of drive by and creep on my old house. I don't know if any of you are like that. But mainly, I don't really care what's going on. I care about my trees. Like, how is my red push pistache? <laughs> and it is beautiful. It is the best tree that Chandler, Arizona has right now. It's gorgeous. My crepe myrtles on the side are gorgeous. I planted, a, spent a lot of money on a 24-inch box tree because I wanted a big tree right out of the gate and I wanted to enjoy the shade. And God says, everybody's looking for the big, glorious, obvious landmark. But the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Do you see it? As I've been praying through this, like what's the thing, what's the heart check God wants us to leave here with? I think here's a simple prayer we Christians can pray as we go to work, as we enter our homes with our spouses, with our kids, with our grown kids, with our wayward kids. In whatever situation, you walk in with eyes of faith and say, God, what am I missing? Because if the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, I'm going to need your help to see where that's sprouting. What am I missing? Because it's easy to miss. David who's cute and little, and it's easy to miss a mustard seed, which is the kingdom of God. That's the first thing we see in the story. second thing is this. The king of God's choosing is faithful in the field. He's faithful in the field. Let's hear how David is first talked about. Verse 11, as far as what he's doing. So they're having this kind of parade of Jesse's son number one, Jesse's son number two, Jesse's son... Seven, nope, these aren't the guys. Go get the other one. Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. He's in the field. And this could have been like we hit him at the right spot. Like some of us like that aren't workout people, but you run to some of the gym, you're like, oh, that guy wants to work out. No, that was the one time for all of 2022 that I was in the gym and you caught me at the right time. But David, every time he's brought up, he's exactly where you think he should be, if this is true. He's in the field. Go to verse 19. David gets anointed. He does this special thing. Split up. Go back to doing whatever you're doing, David. Saul, go back to doing what you're doing. Verse 19. Saul needs help. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. This is the king that God chooses. He's faithful in the field. Again, if he's like 12 years old... King David, as far as a crowned king, does not begin until age 30. Anointed with oil, filled with the Spirit, given the title, given kingship from the Lord's special anointing, 15 years later. It's public now. I can post this on Instagram finally. I've been waiting for this moment. And this is not a one-off. This is sort of how great men and women of the Bible get brought into and used in the kingdom of God. Like Jesus, God in the flesh, his first 30 years of life, what was he doing? We record his birth, and then it goes dark. He's faithful in the field somewhere. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He gets saved. He meets Jesus in this miraculous way. 
And it's not clear, but then there's sections where you see, what happened after that? 14 years he goes off to be faithful to refigure out what he thought he knew about the Jewish text and then step back on the scene 15 years later. Where was he? He was faithful in the field. Where is David? He is faithful in the field. We all need to hear that. Like we got a lot of younger people in their 20s who are sort of on the upslope of life, which is great. I miss those days. But there's not a moment where you get to outgrow this passage. God is telling you, be faithful in the field. And then you sort of get this moment, you're older. You know, I was just hunting with my dad, and he's kind of longing for the way it used to be and kind of questioning his usefulness and, what, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's like, be faithful in the field. That's what the kingdom, it's people who are faithful in the field. Faithful, what's your field? Be faithful where God has placed you. I was meeting with my counselor. He's the sort of coach and counselor for pastors. We're talking through stuff, leadership and just church. And mostly it's like always great to talk with him. But he also is the counselor, coach behind the scenes to a lot of big name pastors and leaders, a lot of them who go south. And he always tells me, I can't tell you names, but in his lesson always is this, and it summarized this way, and he told me this last time we talked, Josh, you stay small. Stay local. Pick a zip code. Pastor that zip code. Die and be with Jesus. David is faithful in the field. Saul gets anointed king. He has this victory. All this hoopla right out of the gate. David, every time you see him, he is taking care of some sheep in a field. And it's going to be this way for like the next 15 chapters of this book. Why? Because that's how the kings that God uses are made. And that's how people who are useful and helpful and beneficial to his kingdom work. They're faithful in the field. So what's your field? I think of stay-at-home moms, my wife, just getting hammered by boy after boy after boy after boy. Aubrey, faithful. I think if people have retired and figure out what's next, figure out what your field is and be faithful. Picture all you people on the upswing, like figure out what's my career thing. Well, I'll tell you this, you're under people you don't like right now, that you probably don't respect, be faithful in the field. The kingdom of God does not come on with a bang. It comes through people walking out of the field they've been in for years being faithful. Be faithful like David. Here's the next thing we see. The king of God's choosing is gripped by the Holy Spirit. Now, just a disclaimer. This is a crazy passage right here. 13 to 15. What we're about to experience is weird. But let me just read it, and we're going to talk about the weird stuff and then the good stuff we get out of this. So starting in 13. So David's the guy. He's cute. He's ruddy. Sweet little eyes. Gosh, he doesn't even shave yet, but that's our guy. Arise, arise anoint him. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. His brother's like, let's go. David doesn't know what's happening. Nobody knows this is like a king ceremony. It's like those of you who are office fans when Dwight secretly marries Angela and she doesn't know because he's speaking differently. It's like, we're married. What? Not, I didn't know that's, why, that's what's happening here. He got Dwighted. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon, nobody sees this, David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and left. End scene. Let's look at Saul. 
verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So there's a lot going on there. In, a, in our modern day, here's how we work. We got the, what's happening? Well, what's the cause of that? We have a lot of sort of middle reasons on why stuff happens. Science and, well, it happened because that's the political nature just here's how the Jews thought. What happened? There's no like middle ground. It happened because God did it. Why is there craziness going on with Saul right now? Because God gave him a harmful spirit. So it's like you got to wrestle with, wow, that is different mindset that we have. And I'm not, I, have, I love science. I was a science teacher in my prior life. I love medicine. I, loved, I love all these things. I love reading about how clouds, I love all this stuff. But our culture says, stop there, and that's the cause of anything happening out there. And we don't ever get back to the origin, God himself. So what we read here is how the Jewish people thought, which is correct. God is in control of everything, good and evil. He did not create evil. He created all things, and evil rebelled against him. And now he is governing both good and and evil, and Saul has rejected him, and part of his punishment is God is guiding evil spirits towards him. It's like the book of Job. Even Peter in the New Testament says, Satan has asked me to sift you, Peter. And Jesus says, I'm going to let him. So like all this evil, how do we make sense of all this evil? God is in control. I can't go point A to point B on a lot of this. I just trust God's ultimately in control. Science explains how weather works. Science explains how my body and mind work. But ultimately, the root cause of all this is the Lord Yahweh. And we need to be reminded. But here's the other thing. This tends to be the most mentally unhealthy person in the Bible. If you're doing a sort of study on mental health and you want to go to ancient texts, Saul would be the guy you would go look at. One of the top. Because this is the beginning of the end for him mentally. He goes nuts. And a lot of people are like, it seems like he's bipolar. It seems like he's got panic disorder. Multiple personality disorder. Yeah. He's got a lot going on. The way the author would say is the Lord allowed a harmful spirit to fill him in the void that was left there because of the spirit of God left. That's a lot. What do we do with that? Ah, I'm going to go read my sign. Here's what, here's, what do I do with this? For us, my wife and I were just talking about this. Growing up, none of our friends had counselors or therapists. We're all messed up. We're like, it's just interesting. And now everyone has a counselor and a therapist, and we, it's great. However, I think this text should just remind us that the two components, there's a theological component to life, like God and what God's doing. There's a psycho, psychological component physiological component and I think we live in a world where we're first flinches I got to get help and I love I have counselors I've seen a psychiatrist I have family members like don't hear this as bad I just think we need to be reminded as we think about what is causing this what's going on what's with my life am I even addressing or considering the theological component when I think about the health in my life? Or do I just go here and want to be fixed? Because here's what the theological is going to do. It's going to show you, like, what's in your tank? 
If you did a slice and dice and look at Saul, what was in his tank was not the spirit of the Lord. It was a harmful spirit. What was his foundation? It was nothing, so it was filled by the evil of this world. Again, this is a very big side, but just, it's in, we have a ton of, a lot of my friends are counselors. I just, I have this conversation all the time. People come to me, and it's different because if I break my arm, if one of you breaks your arm, none of you calls me. Hey, Pastor Josh, you just broke my arm. What do you recommend? (laughs) Don't call me. If you have marriage issues, if your kid's struggling with anxiety, if you can't get out of your head, if you have crippling mental health stuff, counselor, pastor, church person, they're all an option. The question is, who's going to help? Both are helpful and have their place. But the cultural moment we live in continues to shut down this theological component to say it's all found here. And that's just not the way it is. Both are necessary. You've got to know God. You've got to know yourself. And counselors and pastors can help with both. But this is the beginning. Just so you know, Saul gets twisted quick. And the rest of the story is Saul like spiraling, 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 spiraling. And David being faithful, faithful, faithful. But what happens to David here in this little weird snippet of, man, what happened to Saul? Here's what it says about David. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 13, rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and left. This is the first time that the king that God chooses receives the Spirit, and it stays on him from that day forward. It's like a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. What is the kingdom of God? It's where the Spirit of God dwells. Where does he dwell? In the people that he rushes upon. Even the word there I love, it rushed upon. David did not earn this. He's a boy in a field. He doesn't have credentials or resume to say, that's who I will fill. Why are any Christians in this room filled with the Holy Spirit? Because at some point you declared your need before an almighty God, and he forgave you and he filled you with his Holy Spirit. And it rushed upon you, and that spirit will never leave you until the day. It won't even leave you when you're dead. You have the spirit for the rest. Of, I'm like, I, I just about said something. <laughs> and that's encouraging. We have the spirit of God now and forever. And how does it describe the spirit rushing upon him? It is a powerful, powerful spirit. The kingdom of God is easy to miss because it's a kingdom where the spirit of God is the main player. And our job to sense that. That's the third thing. Fourth thing is this. The king of God's choosing is... I spilled coffee on my thing. Here we go. Brings comfort and healing before he's a warrior. David is on the scene. He's in the field. His first act as king, crowned by God in private, is not a battle. Next week... We are going to study David and Goliath, and it is epic, and it is wonderful. And it's like, I want to be David. I was just telling Ozzy a story last night, and he's like, can you tell me David and Goliath? We love that story. But it does not start with David and Goliath. It starts with David helping, healing, comforting the man who would eventually become his number one enemy. And let's just read that together. Verse 15. Saul's servant said to him, Behold, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So again, that's the whole thing. What's going on? All they know is Saul's not himself. There's a harmful spirit at at work right now. 
Verse 16, what's our solution? Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Why this? I don't know. Why a harp is the solution to his mental health anguish? It's just what's here. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. I love all those descriptions that get played out over time. And the Lord is with him, the main thing that makes David, David. Verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. This is the beginning of their relationship, which will last for over a decade. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. That is a beautiful foretaste of the healing comfort that Jesus brings. Like there's all, you got all these passages in the Old Testament that describe Jesus as this conquering warrior or this like mystical guy walking around sort of doing magical healings. Isaiah says this, when he comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams of water with, will cover the wasteland. That's what the king's going to be like. He's going to bring healing and comfort. And here David brings refreshment to Saul. That is what the kingdom, of, it brings refreshment. There is coming a day where God will separate sheep from goats. Not literal animals, sheep and goats, but those who love him and those who reject him. But he's still in the season of healing and comforting and using us spirit-filled people to bring comfort and healing to those around us. Like, are you bringing refreshment to the places God has you? My wife is like the most under-the-radar, refreshing presence you'll ever be around. We're at 4th of July, all these fireworks going off, neighbors drinking, kids are playing, everything's just going nuts. And I see my wife over here talking to this lady. She's like, yeah, leave me alone, get out of here. And afterwards, this lady basically spills out her whole guts of an affair and life falling apart and all. She's like, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I'm like, I do. You are filled with the Spirit, and you are this comforting, nourishing, refreshing presence that people long to be around. Where does that come from? That's what the kingdom of God is like. It brings comfort and healing. David and Goliath will do battle. But before David kills Goliath, David picks up a harp, and he sings to his enemy. That's the kingdom of God. It leaves us to our last point, which will be quick. The king of God's choosing is a suffering servant. What is used to describe David here by people watching? Nobody calls him the king except for Samuel and God. Here's verse 21. And David came to Saul and entered his service. He is a servant. And Saul loved him greatly. Why? Because he became his armor bearer. What is the ultimate king of God's choosing going to be like? He's going to be a servant, a suffering servant. Like I said, David is a young boy, and he's going to suffer for the next 10, 15 years because of this man that he is singing to off to the side. 
Why is it like that? Because that's what Jesus is like. This is what it says about Jesus. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Why? Because that's what the King of God's choosing is like. We're watching Chosen with our kids. I told you this. We're in the middle of the second season. I just watched my favorite episode. Jesus is off to the side. He's only at the very end. He's in this tent. He's doing all this healing, and it's Mary and the disciples, and they're just talking about life, and kind of their disagreements are bubbling to the surface. And at the very end of the episode, Jesus is like dragging his feet. He's got blood all over him. He just says, I'm tired. And he goes to bed. I'm like, that is the most real picture of what Jesus came to do on this earth. Why are you so tired? Because I came to serve, not to be served. But he did not just come to be a good example of to look at, to see, and to go emulate. The end of that passage says he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is what you have to pay to bring back that which is now in bondage. He served to the point of death so that his death on a cross could buy back those of us in this room who are in bondage to what? Sin. What is sin? It's living life outside the kingdom of God and the way that God wants his kingdom to work. And we all are that by nature and by choice. And the king comes and he serves to the point where he buys us back so that we could have life and we can live and we could see this kingdom even though it's a mustard seed. We now have eyes of faith to see as God sees. Why? Because he came for us to do this. I want to end on this as we enter just our time of communion. Some of you heard this. This is kind of a Christmassy time passage. But I want you to close your eyes and I just want to read Isaiah 53. Nobody expected David. They wanted the tall guy Saul. Nobody expected Jesus. They wanted a mighty, good-looking, obvious choice. And Isaiah says this about our suffering king. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he... Christ grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form. He had no majesty that we should look at him. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is our King. Let's pray. God, we all confess that we see the outward appearance. Even if we've been walking with you for years, there is a natural flinch, a natural default, something inside of us that assesses life by what we can see. We're looking for the big shady trees. We're not looking for seeds sprouting up. 
We're looking for conquering kings. We're not looking for shepherd boys in a field. We're looking for numbers and influence. We're not looking for slow, boring, steady faithfulness. God, we're looking for success and applause and notoriety. We are not looking to pick up an instrument and play behind closed doors for our enemies. So all of us need to be hit by this passage and the reality that the king and the kingdom of God is never what we expect. Yet it's exactly what all of us need. We need a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So God, help us to worship you, the servant who gave your life, not because we're impressive, but because you chose us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.